You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. We are in a series this summer on the book of Psalms that we are calling Songs in the Key of Life, inspired by Stevie Wonder's greatest popular music record of all time, the 1976 album of the same name. When we said Stevie Wonder challenged himself to write many, many different types of texts and melody to bring to light the full range of the human experience of emotion. There is a song about love. There is a song exploring the suffering of ghetto poverty. There's a song giving voice to the joy and wonder of childbirth. And yes, there are songs of deep pain. And one of the songs of pain on the album is called No Ordinary Pain. And it's about a man who has been betrayed by the woman he loves. And the text of the song goes like this. When by the phone in vain you sit, you very soon in your mind realize that it's not just an ordinary pain in your heart. When you by chance go knock on her door, walking away, you're convinced that it's much more than just an ordinary pain in your heart. It's more than just an ordinary pain in your heart. Psalm 55 is a song about more than just an ordinary pain in the poet's heart. David has written a song for the worship of the people of God that explores profound pain. And a lot of the psalms we've explored this summer so far in the sanctuary have been relatively bright psalms, but I need to remind you that over half of the book of psalms are songs of great pain. And we've been exploring how the psalms gives us words and postures of mind and body and soul and heart to explore and to practice in the presence of God so that when we go out in the world and experience all of the things of the full range of human experience, we might learn to navigate reality with God in a beautiful and in a broken world. And so today we come to one of these many songs of pain, and I've I've tried to summarize the dominant emotion of this psalm, but I can't because there is terror and fear and dread. There is sharp anger over a deep betrayal. There is a thirst for justice. There is grief over broken memories and broken relationships. It becomes so striking when we read psalms like this to remember that they are meant for the communal worship of God's people. That God gives us words like this to come into his presence with, right? I want to explore Psalm 55 in two ways. First, naming the pain. And secondly, calling on a friend. Naming the pain and calling on a friend. First, naming the pain. David names the pain right from the beginning. If you look at verse 1, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. That Hebrew phrase, hide not yourself, is the same one throughout the book of Deuteronomy and other places, which commands that when you see a poor person on the side of the road, you should not hide yourself from that person in need. And David is saying, I am that person on the side of the road, God. Hide not yourself from me. Attend to me. Answer me. Because why? I'm restless in my complaint. And I moan. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. And horror overwhelms me. I like how the NLT said, I can't stop shaking. What do you do with emotions, people? 
especially the big, deep, dark, primal emotions, the kind of emotions that get lodged in your gut, <laughs> the kind of emotions that affect your physiology, that literally make you sick and cause you to lose control and anger and rage. What do you do with painful and disorienting emotions? It's a key question in human experience because every single one of you in this room have those kind of emotions. Whether or not you're prepared to come into the sanctuary and talk about them, they are there. And the question that the Psalms ask you over and over again is, what are you doing with them? And I think that there's some predominant methods in our world for what to do when such things arise within us. Four things. We either deny, embrace, numb, or name. Y'all got that? Four things. Deny, embrace, numb, or name. In many communities, first deny, in many communities and, and families and family systems and, and cultural systems and also in churches, of course, the approach to deep, dark, hard emotions is to deny that they are there. So if I'm feeling hard things, if I'm experiencing debilitating fears, if I'm so angry that I want another person to die, <laughs> then the polite religiosity approach to emotions is to pretend that they are not there to stuff them, to deny them because we're uncomfortable with feeling what we feel. And so we try very quickly to get control of them. And Christians, at least in my cultural context, are very good at establishing this kind of system, where you don't bring too much emotion into the sanctuary, where you don't bring too much anger into any situation. But there is a second approach, and it's one that's, we could say, the polar opposite, and that is embracing emotions. And I'm using that phrase to say that we give full vent to our emotional life. If you give full vent to your emotional life, then you're good, no matter what. I was on the metro the other day, sitting next to my five-year-old son, and there was a man down the way in the metro car, and he was on the phone, and he was expressing the full range of human emotion. He was giving full vent to every emotion that he was feeling, and there were some particularly tragic, hard, uh, yeah, uh, there were some particularly sharp emotions that the man was experiencing that weren't particularly ideal for the five-year-old who was sitting next to me to hear, but he's not growing up in an ideal world anyway, right? He's growing up in the real world. And so eventually that man who, the man, there was another man who was this, this man's peer who said to him, yo, you are being too loud. We don't need to hear all of that. And the man who was on the phone said this. He said, listen, it is what it is. I've had to put up with so much on these trains and you're gonna have to put up with me. <laughs> There's a lot that I could, that, that interaction is a, an onion and I, we, could go explore all, we could go explore all the layers of that. But what I wanna bring out of that story is that phrase, it is what it is. And we might just say that that is the embrace approach to emotions. So I'll do whatever I have to do, whatever I have to do to get what's in here out there. I don't care who has to hear it. I don't care how you, who you got to put up with. And so the, the result of that can range from everything to one of those awkward social media overshares. You know what I'm talking about? Where you look at people's posts and you're like, that belongs to therapists, but okay, you're doing that. It can range from everything from that to far more destructive behaviors. And I think we're seeing that in our city in so many ways right now. Strong, deep, dark emotions being explored on the street, as it were. There's a third approach, though, and, and this third approach is called numbing. Some of you will know this very well. 
Psalm 55 evidently knows it. If you look at verse six through eight with me, David says, oh, if I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and then I would find rest. I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just wanted to launch up on some sort of flying device and get you out of your situation that you are facing in that moment? There it is a natural human desire to just get out of the storm that is our real life. And so we understand when people turn to drink, when people turn to drug, when people turn to addictions and, and games and streaming shows and scrolling on their phone, anything to just escape, escape real reality, not the artificial reality, right? And David is feeling that, and he's saying that honestly in God's presence. God, I wish you would just beam me up out of here. <laughs> and why you want to numb, of course, is, is to feel things feels, right? To feel hurt hurts. To feel shame shames. And even to feel good things can be very uh, hard because we know that right around the corner something bad is coming our way. It can be hard to hope. It can be hard to rejoice. It can be hard to laugh. Because feeling reality is the thing we are often trying to, to escape. Tim Keller preached a sermon one time years ago when I was in college. I listened to it and I, and I went back to it this year. Uh, and it was a beautiful sermon. It's called Praying Your Fears. You should go listen to that. Uh, God rest Tim's soul. Um, he says this about the Psalms. Listen, the Psalms do not say that we should be under aware of our emotions or overawed by our emotions. We shouldn't be stuffing our emotions or bowing to them. We should be praying them. And we don't mean, he says, by praying them that we should put them in nicely manicured and managed little theologically correct confessional prayers. But praying our emotions means you pre-reflectively pour them out into the presence of God and process them there. And that's the approach that the psalm takes. And I want to call it naming our emotions. We name our emotions in God's presence because honestly, God is not interested in your theological abstractions of who he is. God is not interested in you praying systematic theology back to him. God wants your heart, your real heart. And your real heart is the heart that like a V6 engine drives you wherever you go. It's the heart that stays up at night. It's the heart that rages as your fam at your family and you don't know why. It's the heart that's afraid of so many things lurking around the corner. That's the heart that God wants. And ultimately, ignoring our emotions or using any of these other tactics hides us from reality. But the problem is reality is where God is. And I think it's often the case that we don't pursue a real emotional wrestling in the presence of God. We don't invite God into our real emotional life. So our religious life uh, lives at a surface level of social or moral reality. We love church for the connections, the support, the community, the conversations. But as far as the terrain of our emotional life, we are, off, we are often going at that alone. We are often just venting it to others. The prayer closet, if we have one in our house, is more like a vending machine than a therapy session. So we say, God, give her a kidney transplant. God, give me some more money. God, get me a promotion, right? But it's not a therapy session. The sanctuary is a polite gathering place, definitely not anything like a group therapy session. 
So we come into the sanctuary fearful about so many different things, the state of my marriage or despairing over the lack of true friendships in my life or, or angry at the pastor, God forbid, angry at my spouse, depressed when I look at so many different things. But we don't do often, we don't do business with those emotions here in God's presence. And so we carry them around and, and wait for like the pot of oatmeal on my stove in the morning. It just boils over somewhere, sometime. But prayer in the book of Psalms is more like a real therapy session. The Psalms, especially our Psalm today, is like listening in on someone who is just venting. If you notice Psalm 55, it kind of weaves in and out of logic. It's not neatly structured. David does not communicate in a linear or logical fashion. His lament is from the heart. It's from the gut in a real, unprocessed, unpolished, genuine way. And I often meet with people as a pastor, and trust me, and I observe it in my own life, where I am meeting with them and I'm getting their emotions, and I can tell that their emotions have not been taken into the presence of God. I'm getting the raw first cut. <laughs> and when we fail to name and address our emotions, particularly envy, anger, despair, we begin to splinter our souls and disintegrate our personalities. And that often leads us down many destructive roads, looking for places to handle these deep, dark emotions. Suddenly we wind up in addictions and infidelity and living shadow lives. How do pastors end up in places of scandal? I think it's because they fail to do business with this deep emotional reality. Someone can be a great preacher. They can be a great organizational leader. They can build their church to over 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people. But all of a sudden, their lives just careen off a cliff of self-destruction. Why? How? It happens because of this. They haven't attended to their emotional life in God's presence. Of course, we are designed to share our loads with one another emotionally. I don't want to minimize that. God talks about all the time in the scriptures the value of a true friend who comes alongside us and listens to us. But the Psalms put us in touch with the reality that our emotional lives are ultimately crying out for something deeper than another human can give us. Our emotional lives instead are actually our deeper questions of God. Are you good? Will you leave me deserted and alone? Am I worthy of joy? Am I worthy of life itself? Do you actually even like me, God? Are you real? Is there a God? The sign of emotional health and flourishing in your life is not the absence of turbulent and disorienting emotions. Can I say that again? The sign of emotional health and flourishing in your life is not the absence of the kind of emotions that drives you crazy. The sign of emotional health is, does, do those emotions lead you, lead you to engagement with God or disengagement with God? And so David brings to God what he's dealing with and what he's dealing with is profound relational pain that has caused all kinds of distress, even within the city. And after all, he's writing as the king. In verses 3 and 9 through 11, we see that vaguely his trouble is coming from the noise of his enemy, from oppression, that they are literally dropping trouble upon him. We see that he's deeply troubled by how whatever these people have done to him has affected the social life in the city. Do you notice that he looks around his place and he sees violence, he sees strife, he sees iniquity, he sees trouble, ruin, oppression, fraud. David, as a prayer warrior, is absorbing the pain of his city. And that is the calling of anyone who truly loves a place. 
It is to pay prayerful attention to the streets that I walk. It is to pay prayerful attention to the social conditions that are around me. And anyone who ultimately honestly looks at their place will be full of things like pain and rage and lament. There are so many things in Washington, D.C. and in Ward 5 right now that cause me to rage and lament and express pain in God's presence. It's the constant harassment of women on the street that I see all the time and hear from many of you. The catcalling, the harassment, the being afraid for your own safety. Yes, it's the senseless carjackings and seeming just play fun joy over terrorizing people's lives. Do you feel that? So many things. It's the grind of poverty. It's the fact that people try so hard to rise up out of places of need, and yet everything in the society is built against them. These things should fill us with rage. <laughs> and all of that would be bad enough, David says. It'd be bad enough and bearable if, if his problems were coming from someone out there. It'd be bad enough if they were from a foreign enemy or an adversary, but he says no. This is no ordinary pain that David's facing. He said, I could deal with all those things from the outside because those things from the outside don't know me. But what I'm dealing with is relational pain. He reveals in verses 13, 14, 20, and 21 that there has been a deep betrayal in his life. Look at that, verse 13. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We used to walk to church together. We used to pray together. But my friend broke his promises with me. We had a covenant, and he broke it. Listen to his poetic speech. His, his speech was, was as smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. Anyone ever had this experience? His words were like lotion, but they were actually daggers in my back. Perhaps there is no other dimension in life that brings the pain that relationships bring, right? Some tragedy happens to us. Some, we go break a bone. Maybe there's oppression. Maybe we lose our money. But those things didn't know us. They weren't in communion with us. David is processing in God's presence that somebody who knew him has nonetheless betrayed him. So the Psalms don't just deal with general abstractions of pain. They deal with particular extremities and particularities of the pain, and in this case, betrayal. And anyone in this room who has suffered great betrayal in the form of infidelity in the form of abuse, in the form of spiritual abuse in the church. That's why abuse in the church is so tragic, is because religious leaders use words to gain favor in people's life, to make them feel safe, and then they take advantage of them. There is nothing more destructive than that kind of abuse. And the Psalms are giving voice to that. If we've experienced this kind of betrayal in our life, then the Psalms are saying, me too. I know what it feels like. But if we haven't experienced all of that betrayal, it, it moves us to pray for the people in the sanctuary who have. And what do you do with that? Well, yes, David feels fear because he's being attacked. Yes, he feels grief, but he also feels angry. Did you get that in Psalm 55? David's not just sad and heartbroken. He's angry. Look at verse 15. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. Let them go down to Sheol alive. The Psalms often shock us with their anger, don't they? You could be honest. 
you'd be reading the psalm, you'd be at 23, it's all nice and comfortable. And some psalms are like really nice and comfortable until the last four verses, then all of a sudden it's like, and take an ax to their head, God, and you're just thrown off. And us modern people are tempted to say to David, now David, David, let's practice some breathing exercises. David, I found this new mindfulness app, David, and I think that you could benefit from it. You need some strategies to deal with your anger. But no, the Psalms are too real for that. They're too real for that artificial uh, emotional construct. No, you are that angry, or maybe you should be that angry in, re in, re in light of what you've seen. And we get an inside glimpse into David's prayer life, and we are made uncomfortable. And the fact is, people of God, uh, the Lord didn't say this. This just comes from me. <laughs> I think that anyone who gets a glimpse at our prayer life from the outside, if they truly knew it, should be made uncomfortable. I'll be honest. I pray for God to take some people out. Was that right? I don't know. God doesn't rejoice over the death of the wicked, says the scripture. But I, in that moment, wanted God to swallow some people up into the earth. And I don't know if it's right, but I know it was real. And that's what God is looking for. God, the, the God of the universe, asks you to risk the danger of speaking boldly and personally to the Lord of the universe, right? Walter Brueggemann reminds us that the laments in the Psalms are actually refusals and protests to settle with the way things are. And therefore, the laments are acts of relentless hope that believe no situation falls out of God's capacity for transformation. No situation falls out of Yahweh's responsibility. And David prays in verse 19, they do not change, nor do they fear God. Of course, we hope for all people to repent and seek the way of love in the world. But some people are not interested in that path. They don't want to change. They stand ready always to justify their behavior based on their appetites. And that's their system of ethics. They don't fear God. So that's the situation that David is he's naming in our presence and in God's presence. So what does he do? Well, he does what many of us are led to do in such moments. He calls on a good friend. He calls on a friend in the midst of this turmoil. Isn't it right when we have crisis in our lives, whether what has befell us is, is a result of our own actions or something that's been done to us, what do we do? We call on a friend. And I've been present at many moments of crisis within this congregation, and there is one common denominator that I've seen over and over again, and that's the calling of friends. I've seen or heard of friends sitting on the bed when the tears flow. I've heard of friends in the hospital waiting room, friends in the meal, showing up with a meal in hand, friends and just sitting in silent presence, friends who are angry and confrontational, friends on prayer text threads. And praise the Lord for friends, am I right? What a gift. What a truly unique gift from God and, and what a truly beautiful part of being in the church. But for David, he doesn't have any friends in this moment. He's confronting that part of the human condition that all of us will eventually confront one way or another, and that's that our life is our own. There is loneliness here. And at, the point, at this point, it seems like most of David's friends are either opposed to him or have deserted him. It seems that his position of power has been jeopardized too. His power won't help him. He doesn't bring up money. It doesn't seem that money will do him any such good in his trouble. He is laid bare. Have you ever been there? If not, you will be. 
We will all stand before God laid bare in the reality of our situations, even if it's just on your deathbed. Losing it all, being betrayed, suffering oppression, all of it is horrible. All of it will make you feel all of it. There will be big, big waves of fear. There will be nauseous anxiety. There will be blood pressure rising. There will be anger. But somebody look at the but in verse 16. But if there is somebody out there, if there is a friend like no other, there is indeed somebody I can call on. Then the pain is not the end of my song. There is transformation possible in my story. And David's pain is met and encountered by a friend like no other. Look at verse 16. But I call to who? To God. This is the turning point of a song. David has been betrayed by a friend, but he seeks out a better friend for his situation. Look at verse 16. David calls on a friend who is a rescuer. And the Lord, Yahweh, David's personal God, will save me. That word save is used throughout the Bible. And yes, it can mean in the legal salvation sense, save. But it can also just mean rescue. That God will rescue me. David calls out to a friend who is a listener. Look at verse 17. Evening and morning and noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. David recognizes that God is like a divine therapist in his life, ready, willing, able to stand and listen. Look at verse 18. David calls to a friend who is a redeemer. He redeems my soul in safety from the, in safety from the battle I wage, for many are raised against him. David's false friend wanted to sell him into captivity, but David's true friend was a liberating redeemer. Look at verse 19. David calls on a friend who's a defender. God will, eat, will give ear and he will humble them. God will defend David's cause. Look at verse 19. David calls on the God who is a king, he who is enthroned from of old. And finally, as the black church would say, David calls on a friend who is a burden bearer and a heavy load sharer. Look at verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord. It is the verse that drew me to Psalm 55. It's, that, it's the kind of verse that will be on plaques on your wall hanging there. And it's a beautiful verse. The word burden is even too, uh, too narrow and specific. Basically, in Hebrew, whatever has fallen on you, put it back on God. Your fortunes your lot in life. Take that on the Lord and place it on him. Cast your burden on the Lord. David calls on a friend who is a stabilizer. How many know God is a stabilizer? Verse 22, he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. It is this picture of God sitting there holding our shoulders in the storm, making sure we will not ultimately fall down. David calls on a friend who is a judge. Verse 23, you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction, men of blood and treachery. See, David is not taking vengeance into his own hands. He's naming all of his anger in God's presence, but he's saying, I'm not ultimately in charge of the scales of justice for all of reality. God, that's your job. I don't have to bear the burden. You can take it. And finally, David calls on a loyal friend. Verse 23, but I will trust in you. David, after naming the pain, is counting on the heart of God for him in the midst of his pain. In the midst of his betrayal and deep pain, David's putting all his chips on the table of a faithful God. A God he knew who would rescue, deliver, defend, protect. A friend above all friends who would not betray like his friend did, 
God would not betray his covenant to David. God had shown himself faithful time and time again, even in the midst of David's failure. Because if I can be honest, people of God, there, there's a real kicker of Psalm 55. And I wasn't expecting it this week, to be honest. I've read, a, I, I'll, every time I get ready to preach, I read copious amounts of commentary. And this one little scripture reference only appeared in one little sentence and one little commentary. But when I found this scripture connection, let me tell you, it rocked me off my feet a little bit. And that, that little scripture reference is this, 2 Samuel 23, 39. You know that one? Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't think so. <laughs> because it's in one of those chapters at the end of 2 Samuel that's a list of names, all right? And that list of names is listing out David's closest 30 friends who have pledged their loyalty to him to protect him, to save his life. It's called David's Mighty Men. And let me tell you, once you get to 2 Samuel 23, 39, at the end of that list, pointedly, the last name on the list, it comes after Era the Ithrite and Gareb the Ithrite. And then do you know what name you see? Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite. And any of my Bible readers in the room will know that Uriah the Hittite, we find out, is one of King David's closest friends, but it's also in the same Bible, tells the same story of a King David who ruthlessly betrayed his friend Uriah. It, the Bible doesn't hide from you the fact that David violated Uriah's wife and stole her and had him murdered. And all of a sudden, this psalm takes on a different flavor when one realizing that the one singing the songs has caused just the same kind of extraordinary pain to one of his friends. And one is left with a more complex picture of humanity than a single overall victim versus perpetrator. And when we see verse 2 of the psalm in that light, do not ignore my pleas for mercy. Because all of us, when we come to terms with the scales of our reality, we have to come to the terms with the scales of our need will vastly outweigh our ability to meet that need. Whether that's what has befallen us or what we have caused in the world, all of us will be laid bare at the mercy seat of God. And David is saying, God, I know I've David knows he's done wrong. He also knows he has been wronged. And the Psalms put us at a place of just crying out for God's mercy. In any honest accounting of our lives in the world, if we actually tell the truth, if we actually name reality, if we actually name what's been done to us, but what we do turn around and do to others, it can only put you in the place of humbly crying out for God's mercy. And that's when we see something deeper that the Psalms don't just show us the range of human emotion. They show us a deep aspect of the heart in whom humanity, the heart in whose image humanity is made. The Psalms become more than just an exploration of what we feel. We get a glimpse into the very heart of God. A God who doesn't experience sinful rage or passion like we do, but nonetheless a God who feels. And in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, a God who becomes humanity and experiences the full range of human emotion and navigates it in perfect love and holiness. And Psalm 55 poignantly becomes a song of Jesus because he was one who knew this kind of no ordinary pain. He knew what it meant to be betrayed by his friends, even with a kiss on the cheek, sold to the powers that be, disgraced, oppressed, put to shame by who? Really by all of us.
who in God's good world have betrayed God, have broken our covenant with him. But nevertheless, God chooses to be merciful. So Psalm 55 becomes a song of God, of a God who knows betrayal so deeply, who feels what it's like to be betrayed by a great friend. But nonetheless, will be merciful to us and will vanquish our cause in the world. And as we go to the table today, it is so poignant that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he broke the bread and offered for us a table of mercy and love. He is our friend that we can call on right now. Amen. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.